Here we go. It's Monday night. We are so excited to be here. It's time for Iron Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira in studio. We're live again. It's always exciting being live. We had to tape a few because you were at Monday Night Football. Um, we'll start the show off like we always do. Where have you been? You had a pretty eventful week. A huge eventful week. I was uh, Friday, saw Tiger Woods, which is, I guess, when you could go and take a picture with a camera, maybe now like two or three times a year, you can actually take pictures of Tiger Woods. And I got Charlie Woods, so I got amazing shots. I think I must have took a thousand pictures uh, <laughs> at that, at the PNC Championship in Orlando, which is a beautiful course. We can talk about that. And then Sunday, last night, I was at whatever you want to call that game when Tampa was up. I think it was two games. I saw two games. I saw the first half, Tampa up 17-3. They were up 17 to nothing in that second half where they got where they totally destroyed. I mean, considering what happened this weekend with all these different games, it's almost like each one of them is getting lost in the shuffle. But yes, Tampa blew a 17 nothing lead against Cincinnati in Tampa. Well, it, it was exciting regardless of, <laughs> of, of the outcome. But uh, as Ira said, great pictures. You can see them across any form of social media at Ira on Sports. Iram, huge guest last week with Tom Coughlin coming on. We're keeping the uh, the hits coming here. Another great guest tonight. Larry Zonka is going to join us around 730. Right. Well, last week, Tom Coughlin, there's like three uh, people that are alive now that have won two Super Bowl titles. Tom is one of them, I guess, uh, Jimmy Johnson and uh, Belichick. But uh, tonight, we're going to have Larry Zonka, who we just were talking this. I, I would say he and Marina were the two most famous Miami Dolphin players ever. Sure. I, mean, I mean, he's gold jacket, NFL Hall of Famer, a legend, part of the, 70, the 72 team, uh, considered the greatest fullback of all time. I'm just so excited to have him on the show. I mean, this is someone who is great. He has a book out called Head On that just came out for the 72 season. You're seeing everything with the 72 season because you're having this weekend, Saturday night, the Raiders play the Steelers, which is the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, which was the game, one of the games in the playoffs that the Dolphins had to win to get to be undefeated. So let's start right off with what everyone's talking about. And, you know, Ira, every four years there comes out a big ad campaign and it's kind of like a buzzword, like... Will the World Cup get America into soccer? And if that game um, yesterday isn't enough to get Americans into soccer, it's never going to happen because we got a fantastic World Cup final. I'm at Port Charlotte because I was going from Miami I, to drive up to go to Tampa for the game. So I left Miami like at 5 in the morning, and I didn't make it because I had to stop and get gas, which is anyone who knows who drives that route finds it difficult to find a gas station, and I was delayed and everything. So I did. My goal had been get to Tampa by 10, which I only got to Port Charlotte by 9. Desperation. What am I going to do? Where am I going to find? So I found a Hooters to go into there. And so that Hooters, there was 100 people outside waiting, and they finally like why should we who cares about soccer by the time you know they were hit overtime the place was packed with people saying don't turn football on we want to watch soccer and because it was coming up right to that and it was so i guess if the what the audience at the port charlotte hooters is an example yes i think soccer is popular so, so let's talk about the game itself because you know you were texting me like this is the greatest sporting event ever perhaps and it could have been because of the magnitude of what was happening. So kind of set the, the uh, scene for us. This is my definition of what the great I, – it has to be a final game. So it can't be just all oh, a regular – like a great game, which we've all seen everything. It has to have two legends or legendary people against each other, two great teams, and it has to be a great game. And it's like hard to find those type of games. I'm thinking – because you had, of course, this. You had Messi and Mbappe. Messi is considered now Mount Rushmore of soccer. Mbappe, who knows? I mean, if he is ended today, would be considered maybe one of the top ten of all time. So the point is, by the time he's done, he might be better than Messi. So you clearly have two. This is like Jordan and LeBron if they played against yeah. each other at the time. And then you have two teams, which France won it four years ago. Argentina has been the best coming into this tournament, having not lost in like a year and a half and playing soccer. And the game was absolutely 
captivating with the back and forth. And you also have to have your two stars play great. One, Mbappe had three goals. Messi had two. They both assist, passing, everything. So you had everything in the game. And what am I thinking? I would think game seven, NBA Finals, LeBron and Curry. When LeBron had the block, Kyrie Irving's last shot. But Curry played poor that game. I saw as mm-hmm. much as that. And that, of course, they, you know, it's different because less people watched it and because it's they play the NBA Finals every year. The Super Bowls, the Brady Mahomes Super Bowl, you had two great legends. You know, Mahomes is going to go down as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Brady is the call of the GOAT. But the game wasn't that great. It wasn't that, you know, I was at the game and I loved being there, but it wasn't like the classic yeah. game that you would say is so good. And Mahomes didn't play well that game. Um, the Steelers-Cowboys Super Bowls, I remember with Staubach and Bradshaw, those were great games. Bradshaw and Staubach, and, and iconic teams. But so I think that would be something up there. The Giants-Pat Super Bowl, we had Tom Coughlin on. Great, one of the greatest games you could ever imagine. You had the GOAT in the game, but the Giants are thought of as... They were a defensive team. They were a defen- the, the, the thing of all... And the NCAA basketball, for NCAA sports, like Duke, Kentucky, that was a great game. That was in the Elite Eight. That was not even in the in the Final Four. You know, Jordan Ewing in a Final But sometimes these, high, these college players, we don't know if they're going to be great or not at the time. NCAA football, USC-Texas, national championship game, Vince Young with for Texas, USC had Reggie Bush, one of the greatest football games I've ever seen. It was I, amazing. If Vince Young would have had a better pro career and Reggie Bush... I mean, it just Matt Leinart. It just didn't end up being. It, so I think that was it. Wasn't. And then people talk about how about USA versus Russia in in hockey, which was important, but no one watched it live. No one knows who the players were. I mean, from so for me. The fact that more people at that moment, I'm watching this. It was cool. I'm saying to myself, more people are watching this sporting event than ever watch any sporting event in the history of sports. Like that was cool yeah. to think. And then Messi on this stage when he knows that every more people are watching him. They both played at such a high level. And then I guess the only other thing would be like tennis. Uh, Joker, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, three of the greatest of all times, playing each other in a zil- different finals. But tennis is just does not have the popularity. It's also not a team sport. So that's the difference. But that's why I think. I, it's it's argued this it's clearly to me, and I'm sure someone will go back in the 50s and say there's a soccer. But people, everyone around the world has TV, smartphones. The amount of people watch this, you can be in Africa and watch this on on a zillion phones. In the 50s, people didn't have TVs like they had do now. No, I, I would say it's a safe bet to say that this is the most watched televised event ever. I mean, yeah. why why not? It's people like you said, everyone has access to it. and Everyone cares about soccer outside of this country, so it makes. And the ratings sense. in America could have been up to fifteen million. I mean, we're we're talking about humongous numbers that they did the most. It's the most watched soccer event in the history of America, too. So so you get the fifteen million in America plus you have the rest of the world added all together. That's huge. So let's talk about the game itself because early on, I'm looking at this like, well, this is not what I anticipated. This might be might be a gross, uh, you know, Argentina blowout because they look so good early. They scored two. Messi had a penalty kick early. Di Maria scored a goal. It was 2-0. France had illnesses to their team. They came out. I'm texting my friends who are French, big French people and French fans, and they were, they were, and I'm like, they're like, uh, they don't know what happened. They were, it was almost embarrassing. They, that first half, they did nothing. They, they absolutely did nothing. And, and Argentina has this 2-0 lead, and you're like, it's over. It's halftime. They're going to figure it out. And then, this, in the second have the France tried harder the first they seem to be getting more aggressive aggressive but then Mbappe on the 80th minute gets the penalty kick scores makes it 2-1 and then you're starting to nervous but then in a minute and a half later scores another goal I mean I thought we're at a hockey game broke out yeah. you know or something like that where all the scoring comes out and he has that amazing shot to tie it up 2-2 and now it's going crazy and that after the 2-2 that's when it was just became I think it became like a hockey it, it, they both everyone was attacking my friends who were humongous soccer fans are saying they're so 
glad the world saw this because he goes, that's what I wish soccer was all the time because it, both teams decided to play super aggressive. They were going shot on goal, shot on goals. Goaltenders were making great plays. Messi had some shots, but Bobby had some shots. Every, the other players did. The passing was phenomenal. The, for like 30 minutes, it was it was riveting. And uh, and then uh, with the 108 minute mark, Messi has an amazing goal. You know, I didn't know because one of the French players was in the net and stopped it, but it was it had the goal. And then you think it's over. Messi's the champion. Yeah, I thought it was done. Done. And the 118th minute, there's a hand touch on a foul, and then Bobby gets a penalty kick and ties it. So now we go to, to go to extra for penalty kicks, and then the first people to go is Messi and Bobby, and it's like, I mean, that was just as like Kobe and LeBron, or LeBron and, and Matt, you know, Jordan going against each other, and and I think if the, clearly Argentina was happy to get to that because they won so many penalty kicks like that, and they and they w- got the first three, put the pressure on, and uh, that was that made the difference. It was a great game, and hopefully this does do a little more to get uh, Americans involved in, in in the world sport. It's seven twelve. Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel at Ira on Sports. Follow us on social media. Larry Zonka joins us right around seven thirty. Um, so Ira, something that really captivated social media over the weekend was Tiger and Charlie Woods. They were everywhere. You couldn't even see the score of the PNC Championships, but you saw them pictures, them having fun. I think it was a great. A great uh, weekend for golf fans. And that was Friday for me to go take the camera because you're when this course and many courses, it's hard to get to the greens. They're further away. Your cell phone can't get the zoomed uh, images. So I'm able to get a lot of those. And I got there super early at 9 o'clock and watched them. It was a pro-am. So they weren't even keeping score. They was It was like one of the, the funny – I had so many funny lines. One was – and between the after on the tenth hole, they switched on the pro am partners, the the people that had paid the right to play with them, and there were different people that were playing. And someone came up to you know, Tiger walks over to a person, takes his hat off, and says, "Hi, I'm Tiger." And the, <laughs> and the guy goes like, uh, "I'm Dave." Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, that. I thought that was great, but Tiger was great. He was talking to the crowds, talking to fans. Charlie is just a character himself, smiling, laughing, all those things. And I got great pictures of them uh, teeing off. And then after, like the good thing about the pro am, I noticed that the Honda is that when they get to the holes, they practice. Like they, they, you, you see Tiger hit these amazing shots from, oh my gosh, he was on the sand trap because he practices it all the time. Like they literally, everyone's clearing the green and because it moves so slowly with the pro am, they would hit, he'd hit maybe 50 shots after every mm-hmm. hole in putting, chipping, those things. Now, after the final nine, Tiger did not drive the ball. He, he didn't, he chose to let Charlie just drive it. He didn't drive the ball, so he watched them drive it. But I clearly, I was upset. You know, Tiger was limping badly. He saw it on television. Mm-hmm. I saw it purse. He looked worse than he did last time with the Masters and last year. He looked worse this time than he did both. I, I felt bad about that. And then, then Charlie was limping because he twisted his ankle. But Tigers, was, you know, he looked like he was hitting the ball fantastic, was great with that. And so it was just a great experience to be out there. And Charlie is, you know, it's interesting. He, he's very good. I, I've talked to people who said, you know, he's a very, it's a top junior. He's not at Tiger's level when Tiger was 13 years old. Nobody which is, really which is. is. <laughs> which is nothing. But he also has the advantage of growing up in this fish and I was watching him and all the crowd, I'm like thinking, what other 13-year-olds walking around with him? All these people screaming at him. He's going to be used to this. Remember, Tiger himself was not used to this. Tiger, when he came out in the world, you know, like when he was playing junior golf, no one was watching him. People are watching Tiger. Tiger's playing, the, uh, Charlie's playing in these events. So I think that's going to help him as he plays over. Because we've talked about when Rory played with Tiger, Rory McIlroy made a comment. He goes, I could never play with Tiger all my, I, how does he do it? And it's hard. <laughs> and it's like, it's hard being Tiger, but it's hard, hard, it's, it's harder being the person playing with Tiger. And it's harder to be 
it's, if Charlie can become a pro uh, golfer, it's going to be harder being the person that has to play with Charlie and have the crowds and everything around him. So that'll be interesting. We, we've had golf professionals on this show before say that. Like, you, these guys will play great up until Sunday. And then, you know, some, some guy who usually has 20 people following him is trying to beat Tiger Woods. And it might not even be Tiger's golf that beats him. It's the 50,000 people in the gallery that he's just not used to. Right. So, yeah, Charlie's getting a, a good addition, a good uh, introduction to this. And he gets to play with Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler and some of these guys. So I think he's going to be okay. Right. I mean, it's it was fun. And I just, it's this this nice new and verbed, uh, proved version of what they say about Tiger in terms of being accessible, joking around, talking. Like, it was fun to watch him and see that because I've followed him for so many rounds and rounds where he hasn't said a word hasn't looked at the crowd hasn't done anything and he's you know he's funny he's laughing he's talking to people now this was a pro-am but i've seen him at pro-ams and he hasn't done this either so (laughs) uh ira on sports troll these channel mike balsamo here let's talk a little football ira miami dolphins had to go into buffalo it was supposed to be completely snowed out the snow ended up moving earlier in the day so the field looked great at least before the game started and then it got a little bit messy I'm going to take either take that I haven't heard anyone say. I'm telling you, this snowball thing was a disaster. How they, I have watched sports my whole life. I've seen, I've been at Penn State games where it snowed. I've sat in with feet, all the snow all around me and everything like that. They throw snowballs. Then they, they, I've seen Michigan State say we're going to walk off the field. So I've been at games with snow like that. But for the, first of all, the Buffalo Bills, they did not, they should have cleared the stadium. The NFL should have required the same. The Buffalo Bills are worth five, six billion dollars. They could clear their stadium. They could find someone to clear the stadium. They could pay whatever it costs to clear that stadium beforehand. And they didn't clear the stadium. They know they're good, people are going to come in there with packed snow. It was just like a snowball. And people think, oh, it's so cute, snowballs. It's like a commercial. These balls, this is snow that as someone who's probably got beat up by big kids throwing snowballs, I mean, my entire life in, in central Pennsylvania, the snowballs are, are, these are like missiles, like the rocks that are so hard. They're th- and they're not not throwing at the Buffalo Bills, they're throwing it at the Miami Dolphins. You watch these plays, they're trying to play, they're getting pounded on the bench. I mean, it's like Maximus and Gladiator trying to fight the, the other Gladiator with lions and tigers coming to attack him at the same time. This is ridiculous. And I, I'll tell you, I give the Dolphins a ton of credit. They didn't complain about it, which they should more about it. And I can't believe the NFL doesn't find the Bills. But I have, I thought it was horrendous scene. And I hope that the NFL stops that this, I mean, we go to games, we joke about it. You go to a game, you buy a Coca-Cola or a water, they take the cap off. So you're walking around without a cap on water spilling all over you. You can't have a cap. I couldn't. I was at Tampa game last night. I couldn't throw anything on the field. They throw me right out. But no, yeah, I'm gone. allowed to throw 200 snowballs as much as I want. It's a big, it was a problem. And I, I think it, you know, so I said, oh boy, the Dolphins lost. Well, yeah, but they had to play 70,000 fans throwing snowballs at them, plus Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. One thing that hit me immediately was feeling bad for people in the, that paid, you know, $1,000 plus to be in the first row. And you're getting hit in the back with snowballs from people that can't reach the field the entire game. It's it's a bad look for Buffalo. I mean, you guys got to be a little bit classier than that. Right, classier and also, again, you know, you're not allowed, they don't allow the music being played. They're so nervous. I mean, you see the NBA games, if someone says something, like, oh, goes, oh, someone said something I didn't like, so I get them thrown out. Oh, how about someone throwing snowballs at me? And then you have referees that could get hit. They don't have helmets on. Uh, the coaches don't have helmets on. Like, it's even if they had helmets, it's still ridiculous that that they're have it, it's not it's not even just the safety with the helmets. They're trying to play defense, and as the ball's in the air, the snowballs are flying at the Dolphins. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the game itself. This was a lot of people looking at this like this is I don't want to say make or break for Tua, but he's coming off two poor games. The Dolphins lost both. 
I don't think he looked that bad in, the, in this one. It was supposed to be with the with the weather and the wind that he was just going to be terrible. He really wasn't. Down 21-13 at the half. And then, then Waddle has that 67-yard pass, which was a great pass. I have Waddle on my fantasy team. I was really happy for that. But then the defense really stepped up there in that third quarter. Buffalo had two punts. And then Miami got got a lucky with a roughing the passer. Then two at the hill, scored the touchdown. Buffalo punted again. And then when Buffalo fumbled, when Allen fumbled on the 50, uh, that was, I mean, that was, I thought, a chance where, you know, I thought where maybe the the uh, uh, Dolphins could go and take it out to like, you know, a 33-20, you know, like a f- further lead. But uh, it was, uh, you know, I said, it was just the last three drives for Buffalo, like netted like 12 yards. Then the snow came. And then Allen, if they, I think if after Allen fumbled, they could just get a score on that one point that would have taken that extra, like that would have been the one, the two score lead. But then Buffalo comes down, they, you know, Josh Allen, everyone's criticizing him. Like, oh, he's this, he throws, his arm strength is great. He can run. He is great. He's a phenomenal player like he's one of the top three quarterbacks in the league any team would like Josh Allen like except oh, yeah. except for Burrow if you're if except Burrow and Mahomes I think if any other team said hey we'll take your quarterback and you can have we'll take you we'll give you a quarterback for Josh Allen they would always they I would, would take make, Allen over Burrows too right? over uh, Joe Burrow right so I, all these people that criticize oh Allen this he has problems he throws throws a couple interceptions all this other stuff like watch him play like he's unstoppable what he does that Mahomes and Burrow don't do is win games with his legs too they can but they don't that's you know I'll take the interceptions with his 60-yard runs and you know touchdowns from inside the 20 where he's basically automatic if he gets loose. Fourth and one on the goal line just could go right through and come in for this. He showed during the game that he's able to do it. But uh, he tied it, went down, two-point conversion, made it 29-29. And then uh, Buffalo goes down with a 15-play, 86-yard, 556, set up the field goal. Um, that was, you know, that was the key to it in terms of going back down. I mean, Miami, uh, I think that one possession when they tied it, they went, you know, they they, they had to they punted. They went first down to Hill, then they ran, and then they ended up punting the ball. It was like two incomplete passes. But they should have realized at the time, like, we better score here or Josh Allen's going to come down and score. They mm-hmm. did it. I mean, it's almost like one of those things where you could be crazy enough and gone on a fourth down, as crazy that might seem, because you're just not going to stop Buffalo at the end of the game. Saw the Giants go for it on fourth and nine yesterday. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Ira, this is like... I mean, it was, statistically, it's the biggest comeback, you know, that we've ever seen, but just a crazy finish in Indianapolis and Minnesota, and they're getting blasted today in Indy. Well, Indy was up 33 nothing in the first half. When It was at Minnesota. So the Minnesota fans are booing the team. Like, I've, I had listened to this on the radio as the rain's going on. So the radio's on, on my serious radio, and I'm listening to it, and they're just booing them to, incessantly. And uh, this was, it was 33 to nothing. It was, it was the Houston Oilers, 1992. They were up 35-3, 32 points, and they lost 41-38 in overtime. I remember that game. And the last team to overcome a deficit of 24 points to win a regular season game was Washington over Tampa Bay in 2015's when Kirk Cousins was the quarterback. <laughs> like, I mean, again, come back he, he's come back twice. I mean, Matt Ryan is the, and we know, this is Matt Ryan. So Matt Ryan wants to say I'm in the Hall of Fame. He has the worst loss of the Super Bowl when they were up 29-3 over over the Patriots, and then he loses this game. So he has the two worst losses, you can imagine. Uh, but it was just, the Colts now have been outscored 83-9 in the fourth quarter, and the Vikings are the second team in 1,500 regular season opposing games to lead by 30 at the half. And uh, and uh, and win. So they were down by thirty yeah. at the half and come back and win. Only second out of fifteen hundred. Cousins have you know had seven sacks in the game. But how about the second half? The Colts had eight drives. They had five punts. One they were on downs. One field goal and one fumble. And the the Minnesota drives were touchdown, touchdown, touchdown punt. You know they did throw an interception and like it was the Colts were just inept and everything they were doing, including going for it when Matt Ryan tried the quarterback sneak on fourth down and couldn't get it to try to seal that. That was a disaster one. And then the Minnesota had the the Dalvin Cook sixty. 
54-yard touchdown, and then they made the two-point conversion. But it was just, it's, again, Jeff Saturday is getting a lot of criticism because he's, you know, came out of ESPN. Had the, the fact that they had a 33 nothing lead is yeah. just impressive in itself. I don't even blame Matt Ryan for this one. I blame the defense. He scored 33 points. It's the defense not holding up their end of the bargain. Right. I mean, that is that is the point, is that they went touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. They gave up how many? Five touchdowns in the second half. Like, if you're going to score, the, the Colts defense has got to play better than that. And that was, you're, you're, you're 100% correct that the Colts defense didn't come to play. So there was a time period when I thought that Tyler Huntley in replace of Lamar Jackson was just like going from like an A grade to a C grade. And now we're seeing with Tyler Huntley, it's a much bigger drop off than that. It was Baltimore. I mean, Cleveland's. That was a weird game. It was like old school football when both teams like ran for. I mean, Baltimore ran for 200 yards. Cleveland ran for 150 yards. The passing with Deshaun Watson is really. I guess this Deshaun Watson is the uh, handoff Deshaun Watson, like game <laughs> manager Deshaun Watson. And uh, but it was a weird game. But again, Baltimore, who a lot of people was like one of those teams are well, we have the three top teams in the AFC. Could Baltimore sneak in there? They they will game like that. You're like, how are they going to do that? And then the issue is Lamar Jackson. The difference in that. I mean, they they have a weird type of you know. Very few teams are running. Now, you saw the two teams just run the ball almost the entire exclusively throw a run. You don't want to have one of those wide receivers in your fantasy games. So let's go back to Thursday night. San Francisco 49ers, no quarterback, no problem. They take Mr. Mystery Relevant, and they're still winning games. We don't usually talk about Thursday night games, but I'll tell you what. Brock Purdy with his first, you know, after the whole Brady start, you know, like, okay, well, there might have been a surprise. But I thought coming back, he played well in this game. He was 17 for 26, 200 yards, two touchdowns. But when you have to, when you hand the ball off to Christian McCafferty, boy, you know, we saw when Carolina, when McCafferty had a couple of those bad years, he wasn't getting, like, whatever. Wow, and McCafferty has room to run. He's, yeah. like, flying down the field. He's got catching balls, and then you have George Kittle, the best tight end, second best tight end in football, catching balls, and then you have the San Francisco defense, and Seattle played well that game. I thought yeah, Seattle, Seattle, but San Francisco, the more I keep watching, I'm telling you, I just think that the team is going to be, I think with the Super Bowl in Arizona, San Francisco will be there. So let's move on to Sunday, Ira, and this was a good day for a certain type of person. I call it the day <laughs> the haters were happy because they're great, you know, the haters hate Tom Brady, and they were happy about that. The haters, and then after that, of course, they hate New England. And they were uh, certainly having that was that. a worse ending than than a Colts game. <laughs> I would say, and then and then of course the Dallas Cowboys might be the most hated team of any of haters teams, and they had to have them blow a seventeen nothing lead. So to me, those the, the three most hated teams. And then we're going to talk about quickly tonight is you have the two players Baker Mayfield and Aaron Rodgers, the two most hated quarterbacks going against each other on Monday Night Football. So this was like so I don't think there's no one could really win because they're both hated. But the fact that the it's I've never seen I'm watching the game and then someone said I'm so happy today it was a person next to me um at the at the game at the tampa bay game someone said to me he goes you know I, they were a bengal fan so they were rooting mm-hmm. and they're saying i'm so happy that i hate brady i hate patriots and i hate cowboys and they're all happy let's talk about this game here we only have about five minutes or so till we go to larry zonka but you said there was actually a lot of Bengals fans there, which I was not anticipating. Tons of Bengal fans, and you could tell them because they were wearing shorts and T-shirts, and the temperature <laughs> dropped. It was started at 75, and then it went to, like, at halftime, it went, it, someone turned the air conditioning on because it got super cold, and that's what happened. I think, you know, the, the it, as, as the air turned, that's where Tampa Bay just fell off in terms of, you know, and again, maybe Tampa should have got out to a better lead. They you know, they got a field goal on it. They had a great first drive, and then they went on fourth and one, got a first time, made it 10-0, and then, on the, and then they went and also got, then the mistake was on fourth and three on the 32, they tried a 50-yard punt, a 50-yard field goal, missed that. I think they should have went for that at that point. Yeah, That's Ryan the one Suckup to go can't to. hit 50-yarders. What? Ryan Suckup no, can't hit 50-yarders. No, he can't. 50 so they ended up 17-0. Then Cincinnati was smart, getting a field goal at the end. But you're still so confident. I mean, it was a like total domination, 16-7 first downs. Bengals had it made a third down. The yardage was 261-90. to 90. 
This game in the second half, you talk about things we haven't seen, like everything this whole weekend is I have never seen anything like that. I never saw the first half. Now, this is Todd Bowles, the decision on fourth and one on your own 26. Send the punt team on. Okay, fourth and one. That's, you know, we can go with whatever. They try a fake punt on your own 26 when you're leading 17-3 to in a game. <laughs> it is ridiculous when your defense had shown. What were you thinking? And the announcers were saying, oh, it must have been a mistake, miscommunication, this, all this. They kept excusing it. In the post-game press conference, they went and asked him, they go, what, what happened? There was a miscommunication. He goes, no, we called it. He goes, no, you didn't really call it. There must have been a mystery. No, no, we called it. Like, they were like, they could not believe that you would call a fake punt. And the fake punt was, it was snapped to the, uh, the uh, Vaughn, and he, mm-hmm. they, he fumbled it. it was, the whole thing was ridiculous. To even call that punt is ridiculous. They must have run. I watched him play all year. It might be the second fake punt all year. Why would you run it from your own 26-yard line? And on fourth and one. You do this on fourth and nine. Run a play if you're going to go for it with, with one yard. <laughs> Trust your offense to get one yard, not special teams guys. Right, and Brandon St- This would be like something San Diego would do. Like, I mean, <laughs> or the L.A. Chargers. I mean, it was ridiculous. The Bengals get a field goal, make it 76. Okay, so that's fine. Then Brady throws an interception on the Tampa Bay third, so they get it back on the 31, and Burrow goes and gets sacked back to the 50 when he was running around, but there was a penalty. So then they're able to go, and they score a touchdown there, no two-point conversion. And then Brady fumbles on a stack, so they get the ball on the Tampa Bay 13. Then Brady and Fournette can't handle the ball. I was listening to Brady say it was the first time that ever happened to him ever where he's missed a handoff, a handoff like that. They get the ball in the Tampa Bay 39. So from the 26, 31, 13, 39, and 47 on and then Brady threw another interception. I mean, the game's over. How in the world? I mean, for the game, Cincinnati had 237 yards and they just kept scoring touchdowns. Burrow had four touchdowns. They, they were getting, you can't just keep getting, it's almost like watching college football in the overtime rule and having one team get the ball in the 25 every time. It was crazy at the end of that. So Dallas last week almost loses to Houston. It was way too close for comfort. And then they let Jacksonville come back yesterday and beat them in a very impressive showing from Trevor Lawrence. Boy, Jacksonville now is only with Tennessee losing. Who would ever thought that now Jacksonville, who people thought the season's over, now they're one game out and Tennessee keeps losing, Jacksonville keeps winning. And if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan and you're talking, oh, we're so great, you know, this is, they definitely were looking forward to playing Philadelphia next week. And now that game doesn't matter at all. They have no chance. I mean, they would have to win three in a row and Philadelphia would have to lose three Jalen in a row. Jalen Hurts probably out. And Jalen Hurts would out. But I think the fact that it's like now almost virtually, you know, all Philadelphia to do is win, their magic number is one. Terrible, terrible loss when you had the lead. Uh, Dak Prescott, a lot of criticism, what happened. And decisions he made. Interception at the end of the game wasn't his fault, but Rashawn Jenkins, 18 tackles and he had the interception. And that was a great game on defense for Jacksonville. And Trevor Lawrence looks fantastic. And again, he's making those nice strides that you want to see in the second year. Uh, he's going to be trying to be that elite status. And he's look. I always thought Trevor Lawrence was fantastic at the last year was it was just it was difficult. It was and, a mess in Jacksonville. And it was a mess. And, and Doug Peterson has brought the, you know the the the, the uh, you know grownups in the room type of coaching, <laughs> and it's working. New England and Vegas. I talked about, you know, ways to lose a game. Blowing a 33-point lead is a tough way to lose a game. But, man, the New England and Vegas finish was something else. I get a text from my partner on my fantasy team, and he's like, we have Jacobs. He had 93 yards. He goes, it's going to go to overtime. The the Patriots are going to run a play. They hand the ball to Rashawn Stevenson. He runs. He hands it. He rattles it to Jacoby Myers, which... It was okay. It's, I don't have that big a problem. But then Jacoby Myers, remember, the score is tied. Throws the ball back 30 yards the wrong way to Mac Jones, where Chandler Jones intercepts the ball and runs and knocks Mac Jones out and runs it for a touchdown. It is the stupidest play I've ever seen. I mean, you watch this, like, eight- and nine-year-old bitty league teams would play That's this. That's what it looked like. Or this is, like, a grainy film from a high school where, like, can you believe this happened at a single-way Indiana high school game that someone did something crazy? Like, Jacoby Myers, like, you get paid $10 million a year. How do you, well, what's the purpose why would you throw the ball back because when you throw it back even if it's fumbled they can just it makes no sense and you're it's tied there's no That's purpose 
you're not losing the game. It's tied. And say, go to, what, what was the chances of you, the chance that something bad was going to happen if there was a probability was like 90%. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> Nothing. Like, what was going to happen? Mac Jones is going to catch it and run crazy. Like, this yeah, the, was the, the, the least athletic guy on the field. Right. This was the <laughs> craziest thing. Like, Jacoby uh, Myers could have just tried to run down the sideline or whatever, but that was the stupidest thing. And they deserve to lose on a play like that. And that was terrible. So, so again, the Brady haters are happy that they blew a 17 thing. Did I, did I mention that he was, Brady was 89 and 0 with the 17 point leads and they lost it? I was 89 and 1. And I guarantee you, Bill Belichick has never lost a game like that in the history of I'm coaching. shocked Jacoby Myers wasn't cut today. If, if they weren't so terrible at wide receiver, he'd be cut. I mean, he's not good enough. Well, they were asking Belichick, they go, like, what about coaching? I go, what? You need to tell someone don't throw the ball 30 <laughs> balls the wrong way? Like, I just don't understand. Like, that, like, that's like a basketball player going at the end of the game. But, you know, I've seen, like, you, you've seen, they compare it to the stupidest thing we'd say with the greatest game. This was, it's hard. You can't fathom a player making such a stupid play. And this isn't like Leo Lett, like a stupid fumble or turnover. This was a mental decision that just like, I guess, walk off the field when you, I, I don't, I can't imagine anything worse than this. Just a minute till we have to get to Larry Zonka. So quickly here, Packers Rams tonight, Ira. And I, I don't know what to do with this one. I think I'm going to take Green Bay and, the, and lay the points. I love Green Bay in this game. As I said before, I think Aaron Rodgers. This is they've had a week off. They're coming. They're now they they feel like at the five and eights they can still they're still in the playoff hunt. The Rams are done. The Rams all the defensive players are out. Um, Rodgers is six and one against the against the Rams. Last year he beat them uh, 36-28 in Green Bay. He likes it when it's cold. I know he doesn't do well in the playoffs, but he likes it in the regular season. I'm looking. I need him desperately to have a fairly good game today and for fantasy purposes to advance the next round. So I do like Aaron Rodgers tonight. And they get Romeo Dobbs back. So we'll see if at wide receiver. Uh, real quick, you'd mentioned that it's pretty much everyone's alive. There's like six teams that that are that are eliminated at this point. How do the playoffs look? Well, really, just again, just the Colts at four nine. Texans and Broncos in the AFC are out. Everyone else is in because the last playoff spot is 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 the seven and sevens, and so the Steelers at you know the at, at the eight and sixes. I mean, so the seven sevens and the six and eights are in. So that fact is that if you're six and eight, which is like a lot of other teams, Jacksonville Raiders, Steelers, all those good guys, Browns, they're they're into that. And in the NFC, the last one, Washington's at seven six and one, but that lets the other teams in. And the key is in the Bucks division, they're six and eight. How should it be? Carolina, the Saints, or the Falcons? They've only won five games. It's Christmas. You played the whole season won five games you're five and nine you're one game out of front yeah. <laughs> and you control your each team controls their own destiny almost to get to it so really only the Rams Arizona and Bears are out so the NFL is happy because not only are teams fighting there's fans it's like oh this happens this happens it could happen so you're now interested in how other teams are playing but also yourself so that's good and next week if you love the NFL you have eight windows of games Thursday to Monday Thursday night Jacksonville Jets Saturday there's seven games and then it goes Philly Dallas then at night is Vegas and Pitt the uh, Pittsburgh uh, at Immaculate reception, 50-year anniversary. Sunday, Green Bay, Miami. I'll be at that game. Denver at Chargers. Tampa Bay at Arizona. And then Monday night, Chargers at Colts. So you are going to have a whole... This is buffet time to watch NFL football. Yeah, everyone's off work and watching football. Oh, my gosh. What a time. <laughs> Let's go to Larry Zonka. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're so honored to have uh, NFL Hall of Famer, Miami Dolphin legend, author of Head On, Larry Zonka. Thanks a lot, Larry, for coming on Iron Sports. Well, thank you, Ira. Thanks for having me on. So you have this book out called Head On, and I'm going to say the cover of the book is scary because my lights are off in my bedroom and I look at it, and it is, it just, it's your helmet with you and your helmet with the lights, and I got scared. You're, like, ready to play right now. <laughs> well, that picture was originally taken back in the 70s. I had my uniform on for a Surrey's ad, men's clothing store, and they did a kind of head-on shot. 
but it turned out to be a, a great depiction of, uh, you know, right before a play, what you're, you're looking at the defense, they're looking at you, and you put it, it's like being right in the action. So it's been 50 years. It was 50 years before the first undefeated team when you in 72 when you were un, went undefeated. And it's been 50 years after. And now this book comes out on that anniversary. of, And it's just a perfect book for the time. But really, what was the impact, do you think, of that team, of the 72 team that went undefeated? Well, I think it was a very heavy impact. The NFL recently voted as the top team in, in the first 100 years of the NFL. And, uh, you know, that it means a lot when you contrast that against the teams today. But at the same time, it's a very changing game because the rules have changed so much from the time it was initiated 100 years ago or a little over 100 years ago to what they are today. So it's, it's hard to compare what was in the past with what's in the present. But the important thing, it's changing for the better and it's changing for the protection of the players. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I think when you went undefeated in 72, people were like, oh, someone will do it. You know, every now and then, someone. And then when I think after when Brady and Belichick and Randy Moss, when they failed, you know, against the Giants, thanks to Tom Coughlin, your former Syracuse teammate, I think after that, people said, boy, what they really did in 72 was, was, was really hard. It is hard to go undefeated. Well, it's, it's almost impossible, particularly it gets more and more difficult. The season gets longer. The rules change. Um, you know, back in our day, ball control was the big thing. And if you got two touchdowns ahead, the game was kind of over. And if it was more than two touchdowns, by halftime, a lot of people just got out of their seats and went home because <laughs> it was hopeless. But today's game is different. Uh, you know, the rules have changed and enhanced the passing game. And now, even if you're 17 points down at the half, uh, many teams have, have come back and won it. So... Uh, like one of my friends I was talking to the other day, he's taking his kids to this one camp for football and another camp for football and conditioning drills and all these different things that he has to do. He's in his car the entire weekend getting his kid ready for football. He's like seven, eight years old. I love what you wrote in your book. Your preparation for football was working on a farm and getting feed through a bunch of cows. That was the practice that you had to become a Hall of Famer. Well, that was the physical side. The mental side came at the hands of my junior high principal when I got in trouble with the juvenile authorities and was handed to him. And he had me read books on football and diagram plays and so that I would understand football. And that probably is the most important thing today to enhance a kid's chances of having a career in the NFL or in, in football at all is to make sure that he understands what each position is and what its function is and how the thing operates on a team capacity. If you can get that across through flag football or in an early time in their in, in younger years before they get to junior high and start playing tackle football, that understanding the game is probably the biggest first step. And then you, they wanted to put you always on defense. And you're like, I want to be on offense. And the, I guess that's one of the reasons you went to Syracuse. You were the star high school player, but outside in Ohio, outside Akron. But you're like, you know, if I'm going to go to a school, I want to play offense. I just don't want to play defense. Well, that's why I picked Syracuse, just like Tom Coughlin did. Several of us that were larger type running backs looked at the possibility because Jim Nance came from there, Jim, uh, Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, Floyd Little. There was an ongoing litany of great running backs that were in excess of 200, 220 pounds that came from Syracuse. So that was the place you wanted to go if you wanted a shot at being in that backfield, and you were, you were up over 220 pounds. 
And we, we talk about today about these backfields by committee. But you you were in a backfield by committee all the time. You were with Hall of Famer Floyd Little in Syracuse in the backfield. And still, you rushed for your your record at Syracuse was uh, almost 3,000 yards. And I checked it up, and that was the record at the time. You're still fourth in the all-time Syracuse record, you know, 50 years later. Yeah, well, like I said, the rules change, the game changes. Uh, fortunately, it changes for the better in the protection of the players. And I think, you know, there's always an argument. There's always a contrast, certainly. And I lean towards the old rules more than I lean towards the new ones as far as favoritism, as far as a player's concerned. But as a spectator, I think the game's gotten better and better. And I, I loved how you talked in your book about your preparation to get drafted. Like some guys, they talk about the combine. I guess there was no combine back then. But you went to the Hula Bowl and the East-West Shrine game, and your coach at the time from Syracuse said, just go there and do the best you can because that's what's going to help you get drafted. And that's what you did, I guess, being the MVP of both bowls. Well, that was motivation to have a good look. You know, I was in hopes of uh, Green Bay or perhaps Cleveland. My, you know, I grew up in, in the Cleveland area and watch Jim Brown run as a, as a kid, you know, hiding away in the stadium until he could get to watch the game. But, you know, I was in hopes that that would, uh, I would be drafted as a running back in the NFL and, and hopefully one of those teams that would employ that. But uh, I was drafted by Miami. I certainly didn't have any misgivings about that, a young team coming on. But then two years later, well, I cover all this in the book, but when Coach Shula came, you know, we had that hurdle to go over because he had never had a very large running back before in, in excess of 230 pounds. And first thing he did was move my weight down. And the second thing we did was get in an argument. <laughs> we argued the whole whole rest of the time. But I think we found a comfortable position for both of us and tolerated each other enough that we could uh, get our jobs done. The team that you joined in Miami and had been there only a couple years. You come down to Miami, and it's a little bit different. We're broadcasting right now in South Florida on, uh, from all the way from Miami Gardens all the way to Port St. Lucie. So we're used to the Marlins and the Heats and the Panthers and you know all these other Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But you were the only game in town there in the whole th- the whole game in the state in Florida. It must have been cool to be you know the football team, the only pro team in the entire like region. Well, I touch on that in the book. It was a coming together of a lot of different things. If you recall, or maybe you're not old enough to recall, but I can recall, in the, in the 60s, there was a lot of strife, a lot of uh, civil strife going on, racial uh, stress. There was, there was a, a lot of things that led to trouble. And it was nice to have a football team that was a gathering point. And then, of course, two years into it, we were the worst team in the league, but we still had a lot of a lot of friends in the end zones and things that would come into the game because you could get into the game for two bucks. <laughs> it was no big deal. You'd wait until game day. You could get into the end zone for a couple bucks. So we had a following, but then Coach Shula came and we started to win. And I've never seen a more significant unifying factor for a community that was really at odds with each other than, than to have a winning football team right in the heart of one of the worst areas in Miami. And it made a difference. I touch on it. Or, well, I don't touch on it. I dwell on it in the book quite a bit. We talk about it, uh, about being involved with the different folks that were there around the Orange Bowl and in a, in a lot of strife. I think it was a key ingredient for Miami to come together and start to have something in common with each other instead of outlining all the differences we had. 
Yeah, we're talking to Larry Zonka, author of Head On. It's available at Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, any store, Amazon, online, everything. A great, great read about the Miami Dolphins. Um, I loved what you talked about in the book about, I just was at the Tampa Bay Buccaneer game, and after the game's over and they walk out, they put them these big fences up, they walk to their cars, it's in this gated area. I was at an Atlanta Falcons game, same thing, they're in this private area. But, you know, you parked, I love this story in the book, when you went at the Dolphins, you parked with the, they didn't give you parking spaces. So you park with everybody else, and after the game is over, you're out there tailgating after the game with the fans. Absolutely. I, you hit it right on the head. I put a whole chapter in the book about that, because you talk about enhancing the relationship between the team and the fans. We had parking split spots, we're right out there with everybody else, and we got there <laughs> early, so we were close. But a lot of those folks that were there before the game and after the game as well, sometimes four hours after the game, we would sit around and eat hot dogs. Were right there in the area and uh, and didn't even park. They walked in, but the others parked. And we we got a great elbow rubbing kind of uh, shoulder rubbing situation with the fans. You got to know them by name. A lot of the kids there that that came in, uh, some of us players would get together and take them into the stadium with us and get them into the game and and uh, from the locale there. And then after the game, we'd uh, bring hot dogs and things. And we started the uh, tailgate thing. Kind of started right about then. I think Pittsburgh claims that, but I think. Miami has as much claim to it as anybody because we, my gosh, the Miami police used to come at about 10 o'clock at night, four hours after the game was over or five and tell us, fellas, you got to get out of the parking lot. I said, no, it's not going to. Finally, the mayor gave us a special uh, letter saying that we could all stay there late after the game and have hot dogs together and sit around and reminisce about the game. Oh, that is just an, that's a, just an awesome story. And I just was talking about one friend who's a huge Dolphin fan, and, and like you mentioned to him, and this and he went through and listed almost your entire team. So we can't go through all the players, but certainly your running mate, Jim Kick, uh, again, with this backfield that you were in, you, you're used to being in these great backfields with Jim Kick and Mercury Morris, and when you were like, like in Syracuse with Floyd Little, it must have been fun you know, having this running back with you that you guys get along so well, and you both are, you know, carrying the ball constantly. Well, it was. It was myself and Jim initially when Shula first came and we were winning. Jim was kind of in the lead back position and I was doing a little block, a little more blocking. But then Shula saw the, the potential. He brought a guy named Monty Clark with him who was an old offensive lineman from the Browns and was becoming a, a, an offensive line coach for us. And he loved to use the power running game. So he saw a mixture with the three backs. But that only worked if the three backs, myself, Jim Kick, and Mercury Morris, got along. Well, fortunately, all three of us enjoyed each other's company. I mean, there's never been any animosity between us. I think Jim and Merck were competitive as far as wanting to be in the game all the time, but that's a healthy situation. They were close friends and were clear till the end. When Jim passed away, Mercury was the guy that was calling on him the most when he was in the, in the hospital in his final, final days. That suggests that... Uh, we understood it was competitive on the field. We were competitive even with each other in some respects, but it was all in a healthy mode, and we all wanted to win, and whatever that took, we were willing to sacrifice in order to obtain. And you had Paul Warfield, uh, the star wide receiver that came from Cleveland. And I loved how you talked in the book, how you utilized how, like, we blocked for Paul. So when he got the passes, you know, he, he would be able to run out and he blocked for us. And it all just worked together. It wasn't like this diva wide receiver that just ran down the field long routes. We were all one, one cohesive unit. Well, I talk about it in the book that happened on one play when Paul first got there in 1970. 
I turned. Uh, I did not like a defensive back that played at Buffalo, and I saw an opportunity when I was running the ball, power running up through the middle, to turn the whole thing that was coming with me. <laughs> the avalanche of, uh, of humanity that I was at the front of, the vanguard of, I turned and hit that defensive back at the last second and knocked him silly, of course, with all that momentum coming. When I went back to the huddle, Paul Warfield looked at me and said, thanks, Doc. And then he he had that guy in one-and-one coverage the next play because his eyes were still crossed from the impact. That's when I realized how how much I could contribute to the passing game by running into the defensive backs downfield. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, we're down here in South Florida. I, I think you just mentioned you were in North Carolina right now. But, you know, it certainly gets hot here in Florida and certainly July and August. And I don't think I see a person without carrying a bottle of water as they're walking around. And not only in those practices that Shula put you through, not only did you not get water, you had four-a-days, not two-a-days, not three-a-days. You had four-a-day practices. How in the world did you survive that? I don't know. <laughs> I think we were uh, – it was either get in great shape or die. It was kind of <laughs> – I kid about that now. It was it was pretty serious at the time. We had a couple of fellas fall down from uh, heat uh, post station and, uh, and, you know, getting too overheated and just uh, – having a near stroke and uh, it was a, it was a serious thing. I don't think you could, uh, you could execute that today. I don't think the union would let that happen, but at the same time that was then and now it's now uh, it was, as it turned out, it was a great thing and it made a difference in several of those games in the fourth quarter in 85 plus degree heat, which happened several times. Uh, one game in uh, 71 or 72 comes in the San Francisco 49ers game and just weren't used to that heat in the fourth quarter. They put up a great fight, but in the fourth quarter, we just handled them because they just couldn't keep up with it. The physical demand was too much in that kind of heat. We had an 85-plus degree day, and any time that happened, we knew we had an edge right away. So in 70 and 70, you made the playoffs, lost to the Raiders. 71, you made it to the Super Bowl and lose to the Cowboys. But before that 72 season, you had a feeling like this is going to be our year. You know, the, the extra practice after losing the Super Bowl, you, I think you said Shula made you keep watching the film of the game. So that must have been like you had a feeling that that 72 could have been a special year. We knew that Shula was going to be more intent than ever because right after Super Bowl six, he threw everybody out of the locker room except the coaches and players and said, I want every one of you to remember exactly how you feel right now. We're going to think about that. And we're going to draw from this and we're going to go one game at a time with the idea of playing every game as though it were the Super Bowl. He never predicted an undefeated season. That is untrue. What he did predict was that we were going to take every game seriously. And he lived up to his word. Trust me, read the book. I account for it. <laughs> when he said that, Jim Kick looked at me because we had already been through four days in 85-degree heat with no water. And Jim Kick looked over at me <laughs> sitting in that locker room after Super Bowl six when Shula said that. He winked and said, buckle up. <laughs> and his prediction was true because that's what happened. We never intended to go with the, you know, never had an intention or even a uh, passing thought of winning every game. No one had ever done that. But what we were going to do, according to Shula, was prepare for every game as though it was a Super Bowl. That shows his intent, and we did because he made us. And trust me when I say his foot was in our butt all the time. You know, he no detail was too small to be over, you know, to be overlooked. He would bring it up and dwell on it until you just did it right just to get him to shut up. And that's the way it was. 
And we see today when quarterbacks get hurt, they're like, oh, our season's over. We lost our star quarterback. You lose in that year. I think people forget, after four games, Bob Greasy got injured and was out the rest of the regular season, and you still were able to win even losing your star quarterback. Well, he was out for the remainder of the regular season, but he came back in the playoffs. His leg was broke. Uh, It was against San Diego about the fourth game. And a guy went airborne and landed on Bob's leg just as Bob was following through, throwing a pass. And it broke his uh, leg down below his knee. And he literally was, was gone for six or seven weeks. And we had a fellow named Earl Morrill step forward. And I think that just, uh, you know, having a quality player like Earl there, that was a great addition to our team that year. Really smart move by Shula preseason. And we got him. And Earl just, uh, he was just one of those detail-oriented guys. He had played for Shula <laughs> for many years before. And he knew, and he knew what the what the whole setup was, and he just came in and clapped his hands, and, and we took it one play at a time, and that's the way it went. Amazing. And you had some great games. I mean, you had the Monday night football game. It's the Cardinals. You beat Joe Namath. So it was like, you know, you played each game seemed to be, uh, as you as you detail in your book, each game was a super, was almost a Super Bowl each week because everything, there was a motivation for each game. Well, you said you made a statement that you beat Joe Namath. Nobody beats Joe Namath. <laughs> what you might be lucky enough to do is outlast him, and that's what our defense did. And out, outsmart him a couple a couple times. We had two safeties, one named Jake Scott and another named Dick Anderson, strong and weak safeties on defense. And Namath, uh, they had Namath's uh, strategy down to a science, and they knew how to read him and they knew how to fool him. Until this day, when I get, and I put this in the book, when I see Joe at the Hall of Fame, he always comes over and sits down next to me, and we, t- we chat for a while. And sooner or later, he brings up Anderson and Jake Scott from 72 and starts talking to me about, how did those guys, they fooled me a couple times. I still don't know understand how they did what they did. And he'll start talking about it. It's just, uh, it's just, you can just count on it like the sun coming up. That's just the way. He never has got over it. He's still mulling it over on how it happened. <laughs> well, the '72 playoffs, you beat the Browns, and then my Steelers. I'm a, I grew up. That was my my Steeler team, and I was so young. And I remember my. We, they, it was such a weird thing in the schedule is that you didn't play. Bet if you had the best record, you had to go to Pittsburgh to play the game. So that was it. Was blacked out where I lived. So I had to go. My parents drove me to Maryland to go watch it in a hotel rooms. So I could watch the game. <laughs> and uh, but what a game! I mean. The Steelers, that was the beginning of the Steeler dynasty that we did, that came out, and you had the dynasty. It really is one of those games that people should just be watching because you have two of the greatest football teams to ever play played on that field that day that you ended up winning. And it was a very close game. It came right down to the wire. One or two plays made the difference. We had a punter named uh, Larry Seipel who saw that Pittsburgh defense was, was uh, taking off early instead of uh, waiting for the punt to be punted. They were leaving early to set up a blocking formation, hoping that Frenchie Fuqua was a great punt returner they had, could uh, get behind the wall of blockers set up early and and return the ball. So uh, Larry Seipel went to Shula and said, it looks like I could run and make the first down. And Shula said, if if you believe you can do it, do it. (laughs) uh, which, Which translated to, if you're going home with us, you better make it is what that translated to. <laughs> but Seiple saw it and did it. And, uh, well, that was the difference. That moment, that was the turning point in that game. It just uh, so many times through the course of that season, that undefeated season, one player, not always a starter or regular player, not a not so-called star player or anything, nothing like that. It was a, 
a backup player or a special teams player made a play that made a difference. And uh, that was one of them right there that you just alluded to. And then the Super Bowl, the, the crowning, you're up 14 nothing, totally dominating the game. But people really forget that you actually came in, I think it was even. Like, you might have been an underdog by a point or two, but you play Washington and you're up 14-0, and then your kicker tried to do something crazy in the game, and, and that sort of made the game a little closer. Well, there was a low kick. It got uh, it bounced back, got blocked and bounced back and bounced up into the arms of uh, Gary Premium, our kicker. And for years, Shula had hollered at him, always fall on the ball, don't try to do anything with it, just fall on it, because we have a great defense. And Garrow, uh, in, a, in a weak moment, tried to throw it. He's uh, left-handed, he threw it with his right hand. <laughs> but it was intercepted and run back, and instead of uh, 17 to nothing in a 17-0 season, which was destiny, we had a situation where, uh, you know, we had just breathed life into the Redskins, and it was 14-7 with several minutes left in the game. So... It was a very tough situation. A guy named Jake Scott, our uh, weak side safety, came through and intercepted a, a, a ball late in the fourth quarter, just caught it with his fingertips, made the difference in that in that game. And that's I liked in the book how you talked about all everything you did after you won the Super Bowl, because you don't really see that today, where like you're on every single television show. I have friends that don't really follow football. They remember, oh yeah, I remember that uh, he was on these TV shows, and, and you see some, you know, you were on, you were on uh, TV shows and different shows with Michael Douglas and Johnny Carson and those things. That must have been so fun to, to go all around, really, that the post-Super Bowl tour. Well, it was. I think Jim Kick and myself uh, got an unfair amount of the publicity about that with the Butch and Sundance thing. So we we got a, we capitalized on it twice as much. I think some of the other players were much much as much deserving as we were. But we had the time to do it. And the off season was a great time to go around and do those things, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We had the invitation, so we we took up on it. <laughs> That's great. And you mentioned in your book. You know, you went in '73, 12 and two. And you over and won the Super Bowl. You were 32 and two over two years. And you even said that the 73 team was probably better than the 72 team in terms of just the quality of play because you just dominated everybody. Well, the dominance factor. We had a couple of weak games where we finally just took a breather and and uh, <laughs> we lost a couple of games. And it it was, uh, but I think that the the uh, 73 team, as far as ball domination during the game and just. Uh, you know, we didn't have as many close games. Let's put it that way. Uh, there was only one or two situations in 73 where, it, you know, it was a close game. And uh, the rest of the time, it was just uh, pretty much uh, a given that we were going to win. And then it was, you know, you, you spent time in the book talking about how the World Football League came in and you left the Dolphins to go to the World Football League. Actually, you said that, you know, all the players appreciated that because the salaries that you got in the, from the WFL actually increased the salaries that, you know, you, you mentioned eight times. It wasn't like you took a contract as like a one and a half times. It was eight times the salaries. And, and that sort of raised all the salaries in the NFL. Well, it was a time of change. And I think those Super Bowls, when they brought the Super Bowl on in those early years, it... Uh, uh, the the game seemed to really be enhanced. It put the NFL into turbo drive. And I think that the salaries hadn't kept up with it. And we were the uh, link, myself and Jim Kick and Paul Warfield and some of the other fellas that jumped to the uh, the new league that made people aware of just uh, how valuable that football talent was. And it, it, in accordance with that, we started leveling off the salaries a little more. 
And then you mentioned in your book, you spend a lot of time uh, talking about your post-football career in terms of working, doing the things you love in the, in the, in the wilderness in Alaska and, and stories about getting marooned on a boat. And it's pretty exciting that it seemed like it was more dangerous than your football career. I have a way of finding trouble, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Having been a farm boy in Ohio growing up the way I did in the country, out on a dirt road, you know, kind of in the backwoods in the in the middle 50s, uh, it was just a different lifestyle. I, I wanted to see the real wilderness. After reading about Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and uh, the Western Frontier and all of those things, uh, finding a magazine field and stream my mother bought me when I was probably 10 years old showing Alaska and I thought well that's the place that's the outback that's the new that's the new wilderness and I want to go and I went and I enjoyed it we started a show we were up there for over 20 years did several hundred shows up there and got to see a lot of the most remote places that we have in Alaska and trust me folks when I tell you I hope you read the book that's fine but even if you don't check up on Alaska if you have any in to ever go and see the wilderness, the true wilderness. It's still there, and you can still go see it, and that's what I did. Wow, and then you talk you know, in the book about the brotherhood you still have over the many years with your Dolphin teammates, and, and with a, the, you know, what binds you is the undefeated season, and how many of your teammates have passed away, but that you're still so close to, to so many of those players. Absolutely. We look forward to getting together every year and the Dolphins have us back and we come and sit in the, in the corner and watch practice the night before and then go to the game the next day. And it's a lot of fun. The stories get wilder and wilder. Our recollections, uh, me included, I like to remember things a little more the way I like them than the way they were, perhaps. But I, we tried to be very fair in the book and, and take that honest approach to the way, it, uh, the way the circumstances happened and the way the facts popped up. And I think we, we accomplished that in doing it. I feel good about the book, and I feel it's very true to what happened. But when you get together with the other fellows and we start talking about on third down when, when uh, somebody blitzed from the Jets and who picked him up, there, there's always a difference of opinion on who, who did what when. Well, I encourage Larry, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports, and I really encourage people to read this book because, I, again, that nostalgia back, and it's like 50 years since then, and to think that you wrote this book that just came out just now, um, you, it's available, it just came out last week, uh, just tremendous book about the, about the Dolphins and about your career. Uh, it's, it's a must read. Pick it up at Barnes & Noble, pick it up at Amazon, anything like that. So thanks a lot, Larry, for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for having me, Ira. See you again. Hopefully we'll be able to do it again. If I write another book about Alaska, I'd love to talk to you again about it. <laughs> wow. Alaska and South Florida, we're so different. But no, I would, love to, I would love to have you back on. It'd be tremendous. If you ever make it into the West Palm Beach area, we'd love to have you in studio. Good deal. See you soon. I'd like to talk a little Alaska with Larry Zonka. No, great stuff there. What are you doing this week, Ira? Well, on Christmas Day, Green Bay at Miami. It's going to be a great game. So I'm excited for that game on Sunday. We are just about out of time, though. Thanks so much to Larry Zonka. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.